Good morning. How many people believe that God answers prayer? Yeah, he does. I've told this story before. I've prayed for patience four times, and I have four children. And then I learned my lesson. At least I thought I did. This morning, I prayed for humility, because every time I come up here on the stage, I always want to be humble before the Lord, because that's the right way to approach the throne of God. And so as I walked up to the front door, uh, I couldn't get the door open, so I saw some people getting coffee, and I went over and I knocked on the window, and they were like, the door's open. And so I tried it again, and of course it worked. So I walked into uh, one of our deacons providing me instructions on how to operate a door. <laughs> and uh, one of our other faithful servants looked at me and she said, that's surprising. Normally only the old ladies struggle to get the door open. <laughs> so the Lord answers prayers. Be careful what you pray for, because sometimes if you pray for humility, you're going to get a big dose of humility as you walk in the front door of his house. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to start reading in verse 18. Verse 18. For through him... We both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Amen. And I pray, God, that you grant us wisdom and understanding as we explore your word together this morning. I want to slide this back a little bit. Not too much, apparently. Uh, Jonathan, I'm grateful that you brought this over. The last two times that I preached, I don't know if you realized, Jonathan was not here and I had to bring the bring this over myself, and it's not light. <laughs> so I don't know if that's a rec in recognition of uh, I finally made it, and so now somebody brings this over for me, or if I just have aged out, and so they're like, I don't, we're not, I, he couldn't open the front door. He obviously can't bring this over. Um, when Paul writes to the Ephesians, he's writing uh, from jail in Rome, and it's probably about 60 A.D. What's significant about the time frame is that in Jerusalem, the temple, the physical temple, was still standing. What that means for this passage, where Paul is talking about the church coming together as the unified body of believers in Christ, that we become the house of God, the holy temple, what it means is that it wasn't in response to something unexpected that happened by human hands. The temple was still standing when Paul writes this. It wasn't, oh no, what do we do? Oh, hey, I got a good idea. Let's get the church elders together. Let's get the, all the apostles together and we'll figure out, hey, you know what? What we can say is the body of believers, now they're the temple. No. 
This was an intentional theological shift that was going on in the early church. We're no longer tied to the physical temple in Jerusalem. We are the spiritual temple, the spiritual house of God. This is, this is, and that's just from the time frame, right? Writing in 60 AD. This is important to understand going into this passage because what we have in this now is a mindset that what Christ did on the cross, right, when he died and the veil is torn in two, it means that we're no longer accessing the presence of God once a year, the Day of Atonement, when the high priest goes in there and offers a temporary sacrifice. Now, we have access to our Heavenly Father every single moment of every single day because of Jesus Christ. The veil is forever torn because Christ's body was forever broken. His blood was forever shed for us. That's why we have access. That's the setting that this is given in. Now, take a look. Verse 18, I'm starting uh, at verse 18. In most of your Bibles, including in mine up here, verse 18 is actually the last sentence in the previous paragraph. The reason I want to bring that in is because in the Greek and in the Hebrew, they didn't have punctuation or paragraphs like we have today in our Bibles. The way that they isolated a thought, an independent thought, is they would make a statement and then they would repeat it at the end and kind of frame it out. So look at verse 18. What it says is... For through him, or in him, as most of your translations will say, that's Christ, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Take a look at verse 22. And in him, Christ, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. So what you have is all three persons of the Trinity, and they're all at work for one thing in this passage. What are they all at work for? building us together. The full work of the Trinity in us as a group of believers, okay, this is a corporate word, the full work of the Trinity is bent towards unifying us together. Do you see that? That's the frame that this temple analogy is sat into. So our unity then is in Christ, it's for the Father, and it's by the Spirit. Paul continues in verse 19, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens. He's speaking to the Ephesians here. This this would be the Gentile church. We actually have copies of the letter of Ephesians that aren't, uh, they don't have to the church, it just says to the church, not in Ephesus. So it's probably uh, a a letter at large written to all of the Gentile churches in that area. So consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people. So if you look earlier, it's talking Jew and Gentile. Paul, as a Jew, is speaking to a Gentile church, and he's saying, guys, you're citizens with us. He's not referring to physical Israel. He's referring to spiritual Israel. The fact that we are equal citizens in spiritual Israel, we are not second class. And he continues, and members of God's household. We're not just citizens in heaven. We're not just attendees. 
We're part of God's family. I want you to think about that for a second, because when you walk through the front doors of a church, we tend to think of, I'm entering into the church. But the reality is, I don't think you've entered into church until you've been greeted, when you've been welcomed into the family. This is the real church. If the church is her people, not the building, then we need to be busy greeting everybody who comes in here. And so I appreciate a healthy greet time. So that's the frame now that all of this is set in. So then Paul gives us three, three components of this uh, spiritual temple. Uh, we, he says that we are built, verse 20, we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So the foundation of the apostles and prophets, when you think of a building, right, the first part that gets built is the foundation, right? What is the firm foundation that we're built on? Well, it's the truth of Jesus Christ. Why does Paul then say the apostles and prophets here? Well, what do we receive from the apostles and prophets? The Old Testament from the prophets, right? Pointing forward to, hey, there is a Messiah coming who will redeem his people. And then the witness of the apostles, particularly through the Gospels, confirming to us that Jesus Christ is that Messiah. That's the firm foundation that we are being built upon. One of the things about a foundation, though, if you have a good one, not only is it firm and solid, but it's also level. Pastor Tom likes to talk about the, uh, the communion table as the great equalizer. Likewise, the word also is the great equalizer. Which one is it, Pete? It's both. Remember that when we come to the communion table, what are we remembering? Christ's work for his people to redeem them? What does the word of God point us to? All of it points to Christ and his work to redeem his people. That's the firm truth that we can be built upon. When you take the body and the blood into you, you are affirming that as well. It goes on then to say, still in verse 20, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Okay, so a cornerstone then becomes the first block that gets set in this building. Any, any building made out of blocks. The first one you put down, that's, that's your cornerstone. You don't start building a wall in the middle. You start at the corner. Oh, I want to read out of uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, I'm going to start at verse 4 if you wanted to follow along. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, that's Christ, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, that's us, like living stones are being built into a spiritual house. Sound familiar? To be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Peter's talking about the same thing that Paul's talking about here. He's using slightly different terminology, but it's still talking about the temple. He doesn't actually say the word temple. Instead, he calls us living stones. And he says Jesus also is a living stone, but he's the first one, and so he's the cornerstone. 
What's amazing is how much in alignment the New Testament authors are on this. We're going to talk about John here in a minute, too. Let me make a quick point on this cornerstone as well. When you set that cornerstone in place, every other stone gets set and aligned to it. And so there's a simple personal application here, right? That our whole lives, we call it sanctification, right? This process of becoming like Christ, here in the analogy, it would be our living stone becoming aligned to Christ, the living stone, the cornerstone. And then finally, in him the whole building, verse 21, is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Um, the NIV uses the word rises. Most other translations have, just have the word grow there. And I actually like the word grow a little bit better uh, in this instance because um, the way that word gets used um, in the Gospels, they use it to refer to Jesus, and he grew in wisdom and in stature. Uh, what's another reference? Oh, the parable of the sower, and he sows the seeds, and they're planted in different types of soil, and then they grew up. It's the same word, grow, there. Don't think of this as one stone being added in after another. This is not a sum of its parts. The fact is that this is a growing, living structure. Just like Peter says, we are living stones. It's, it sounds kind of weird, but it's this idea of something that was dead that's now alive. That's what's going on. One more point before I get into uh, the next part. Uh, he says in verse 22, and in him you too are being built together. That word you is plural in the Greek. We don't really have that in English. Uh, I like uh, how Tim Mackey from the Bravo Project says it. He says it's the y'all. It's all the y'all. Yeah, so if you're familiar with that. Um, but the mindset there really is like a team. It's a team idea, right? So I'm thinking of a baseball team. Which player on the field is the team? Nobody. There's no one player that is the team. The team is all of the players together. And the more unified together they are, the better the team they are typically, right? And so likewise, a building also is not its bricks. When you add all of the bricks or all of the stones together, it becomes something more significant. Back in the late 90s, 97, 98, I spent one summer as a mason's laborer and I was not good at it. Um, don't, ask, don't ask me to help. I don't recommend it. Uh, my job was the gopher, if you're familiar with that, if you've done any work uh, in construction. Yeah, the gopher. So the masons are putting the cinder blocks down, and I would go for the next set and bring it to them. And then and they would set those, and I would go for some more. So that's my job as the gopher. And I was the only gopher. And there was a lot of, there, there were two guys that were setting blocks. And uh, so I also learned this phrase, dollar waiting on a dime, if anybody's familiar with that, because they were getting paid way more than me. And I really felt like I was working quite a bit harder than they were. But be that as it may, uh, 
I, we built this uh, building. It was huge. It was a gymnasium. That's the, that's the only work that I've done as a mason. We built this gymnasium, and I remember the first day I came around the corner and I saw all of the pallets of cinder blocks. I, it's thousands of cinder blocks. It felt like millions of cinder blocks, honestly. But it's thousands of cinder blocks that go into a large structure like a gymnasium. And as we set all of those stones in, I, at no point in time was I thinking to myself, um, this is going to be a 10,000 block building. No. The whole time I was thinking this is going to be a huge gymnasium, right? Because the way that we define our buildings is not by how many bricks and blocks or whatever it is, cinder blocks, we put into them. We define our buildings by their purpose. And likewise, the church of God is not defined by the individual living stones that are put into her. We're defined by the purpose of those stones when they come together. So then, what is our purpose? Why is the Trinity at work in unifying the body of believers to become a spiritual house of God? I think if you go back, I had this whole thing, this was a very teaching moment, of going through, like, lining up with a cornerstone and all of these things, and I don't think that's what we need. We just need to go all the way back to the very beginning, because I think that's where Paul, that's what he's tying this to. All the way back to creation. When we think of creation, we usually think of day six as the greatest day of creation, when God made mankind in his image, man and woman, but it's not actually the greatest moment in creation. You see, in creation, yeah, we are the greatest created thing, absolutely. God took his time with us, made an effort with us to stamp his own image on us, absolutely. But day seven, when God made a conscious decision, and he shares it with us in his word, when God makes a conscious decision to say, I'm going to stop doing other things, and instead I'm going to go to this garden, and I'm going to place that man and that woman there. I'm going to walk with them, and I'm going to spend time with them together. It's that Sabbath rest with God, that's the purpose of creation. After Adam and Eve get exiled from the garden, it's so important to God that he be with his people that he makes a temporary way prior to sending his son. We call it the tabernacle and then the temple. Jesus being the fulfillment of that old covenant when he was here on earth, right? We see this in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word, there's our foundation, becomes flesh. That's our living stone. And he dwelt among us. Does anybody know what the word dwell is in the Greek? If you have an old King James Version, it's in there. It's tabernacled. It's the verb form of tent. John's saying the same thing there. But not only was he the foundation, the living stone, and the tabernacle. John goes on and he says, And we saw 
the glory as of the only, only one of God, the only Son of God. Remember when the tabernacle was built in Exodus 40, God fills it with his glory. When the temple was built by Solomon and it's dedicated, God fills it with his glory. And now Jesus, we see his glory, the tabernacle, the living stone, the word. And Jesus models all of this for us. And he modeled it perfectly. But then he goes to the cross and his body is broken, and the veil is torn in two. The old covenant then is done, and there's a new covenant. It's what Jesus tells the woman at the well when he tells her, you're no longer going to worship God the old way in Jerusalem. You're going to worship him how? In spirit and in truth. This is our reality. This now is our purpose. All the way back at creation, all the way through Jesus, into the new covenant where Jesus tells the woman at the well, no, in spirit, in truth, you're going to worship me. Paul now building on this, he says, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too, all of us together, unified together now with a greater purpose, we are built together and we become a dwelling in which God lives in his spirit. Do you see that? The purpose of the church coming together in unity is so that we become the place in which God dwells. How do we do that? This is one final point. I'm doing great on time. <laughs> Amen. This was, I'm not joking, I, you can ask Colleen. I was really worried this was going to be like a 45-50 minute thing. Um, I had some help uh, last week uh, to kind of guide me out of some of that. But the final point, I'm going to pull out of Matthew, a couple of passages out of Matthew. Uh, I'm going to paraphrase Matthew 25, the separation of the sheep and goats. And the Lord puts the sheep on his right hand, and he looks at them, and he says, Well done, good and faithful servants. Enter into my presence. Because when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was alone, you visited me. Or sick or in jail, and you came and visited me. And the sheep look at him, and they're like, Lord, when did we see you like that? And he's like, when you did it for the least of these. When you do it for each other, you're doing it for me. You see, it's like Jesus tells his disciples in John chapter 13, he says, love each other. That's the new commandment. Love each other. Why? Because that's how people will know that I'm with you. Pastor Tom preached on John chapter 17 just a little while ago, and then he gave us a little handout, right? The, the love one another, the one another commands. Why do you think they're all over in the New Testament? Because it's what we're supposed to be doing, because that's how the world will know that this is God's house, not the building, but us, that we are God's house. Brothers and sisters, are we willing to set aside our differences in the way that we do ministry, in the various different things that we believe theologically, in what we think should be priorities? Are we willing to set it aside and just love each other and submit to one another?
so that the world will see that God is here with us by the way that we love each other. I got one more verse. Matthew 18, verse 20. It's a very popular verse, and maybe it's because it's what we ought to be about. Where two or three are gathered together in my name. How is that? Gathered together in my name? It's a lot of the same language again. There I am, where? In the midst. In the midst of them. Look, I'm not saying that Jesus in your heart, your body is the temple was a bad analogy. That's perfectly fine. That's great. And it works for you and God, absolutely. That makes you a living stone. But we're called to do more than just that. We're called to unify together, to become something greater, to become the house of God together. So, anyway, that's, that's the word that I have for you guys today. Let's be unified together in the name of Christ.